0: Our sermon scripture text this morning is 1 John chapter 3 verses 19 to 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me open us again with a quick word of prayer. Father, we do, we do declare that this is your word, and so it's the one we want to listen to carefully. It's not the word of a person or a human or even a powerful being, but it's the word of the Almighty and living God, and it brings life to our souls. So speak, for your servants are listening. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. Well, Psalm 31. It's a prayer of David, a heavy prayer. You've probably read it before, but part of it goes like this: He says, "Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul, my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing." My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. David, as he usually does, paints quite a picture. His eyes have cried themselves out. He's lost his strength from his grief. He cannot get out of bed. I think if we heard someone say this to us, we'd say, bro, you need a vacation. You need a different Routine. You need some exercise, a change in diet, getting burned out. And it makes sense. I mean, he's a king. We talk about burnout. Imagine a king has quite a bit of stress in his life. He had some family tension. we talk about dysfunctional families, but I'm guessing your kids aren't trying to kill you and stage a coup. So it makes sense that David would have some difficult days. But it's interesting. David's prognosis is not that he's getting burned out or not that, you know, he needs to get medical help. Although maybe he did. I don't know. But his prognosis is instead, my strength fails because of my iniquity. That's a fancy word for sin. David has a troubled heart. He has a guilty conscience. He has a heart that is accusing him. And I think we all know this feeling. Maybe we don't feel it as viscerally as David is, or at least we wouldn't describe it in that kind of flowery language. But we've all had times where our hearts convict us, where we sit under the burden of a guilty conscience. That is a heavy place to be. And in fact, one of the reasons why we distract ourselves so much in our culture is that we are trying to avoid that feeling. Now John, uh, in 1 John, he seems to be the last person you'd want to go to if you have a guilty conscience. He makes such strong contrasts, such strong statements. Look, you're either loving other Christians or you're not a Christian. You're either walking in obedience to Christ and looking like him or you're not a Christian. And so if you have a guilty conscience, you think John is the last person person you'd want to sit down with, but at the end of the day, we have to realize we have letters, and the one thing we don't get in a letter is we don't get the tone of voice, and what's very clear and what comes through in our passage this morning is that John writes as a pastor who knows this little church, who loves this little church, and he knows just like many of us, many of them lived with a low-grade sense of guilt a low-grade sense of shame. He knew some of them were in full-blown crisis, just as some of us might be in full-blown crisis. And so John, in this text this morning, speaks to the troubled heart. And he calls us to the one, the only one who can bring peace to our hearts because he is greater than our hearts. Outlined for us this morning is our first point, rest for the guilty conscience. Second point, blessing of the clear conscience. And third point, abiding in God. So follow along as I read verses 19 to 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. A little context, he says, by this is probably referring to verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He says, when we love indeed in truth, by this we know that we are of the truth, by this we know that we are Christ, we belong to him. But this, these two verses are kind of confusing. And the sense of what he's saying is, we know that we're Christ's when we love one another indeed in truth, but what do we do when still our heart convicts us? What do we do when our heart itself begins to con- accuse us or even condemn us? How do we handle that? What's interesting is that John seems to suggest that a guilty conscience or a troubled heart is something that Christians will struggle with. It's not going to be an exceptional experience. It'll be a normal experience, which is why he doesn't say, if your heart condemns you, like this may be a hypothetical for some of you, he says, whenever your heart condemns you. Dan Allen, a respected Christian psychologist, he argues that humans don't fear death most. That's probably second. What humans fear even more than dying is shame. The sense that you're not enough. That you're a fraud. You're an imposter. The memory of all the things we've done that we hope no one ever finds out. The fear that that might be found out. What we fear most is the accusations of our own hearts. Whenever our hearts condemn us. And here's the thing. A lot of times when our hearts condemn us, they're there's at least an element of truth, if not they're completely true. It's usually because we've done something we know is wrong, we've broken God's commandments in some way, there is something we're legitimately ashamed of. And in that sense, our hearts or our consciences are are God's gift to us. It's like the check engine light on your car. When that comes on, that's a sign that something's broken. And if you keep driving, it's going to end up much worse. And so when we feel our hearts accusing us, there may be a sign that we need to come before the Lord and and find out what's going on. But it gets confusing, confusing though, because sometimes our consciences get it wrong. Our consciences are, are just like all of us, broken, finite. Uh, and Sometimes they get it wrong, and, and, and our consciences at times will accuse us when we have done nothing wrong. A classic example of this, a classic tragic example of this is abuse victims. When someone is abused physically or sexually, they oftentimes feel a guilt or shame as if they have done something wrong, and of course they haven't. Their heart is accusing them falsely. Another example of this, I knew someone who lost her her daughter very suddenly from a very rare disease, and afterwards she was haunted by the thought that she should have seen it coming. There's something she could have done to save her daughter, but of course there was nothing she could have done. There There was no medical way she could have saved her child. Her heart was accusing her falsely. Shame and guilt, these are human experiences. And there are a few things that will sap our spiritual vitality more than a troubled heart. A few things that will sap our ability to walk closely with our Lord than a heart that is burdened. And so this is who John speaks to. And what a praise God we have words like this, because we need it. And there's an implied command he gives first. What do you do when your heart is troubled? The implied command is go to God. Verse 19 says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. The context of this whole situation is that we come before God in prayer. We come before the Almighty to seek his face. And so the implied command there is when your heart's troubled, when you're suffering with guilt and shame, go to God because it's only in God that we can find rest and peace for hearts that accuse us. Of course, the irony is that we often will go anywhere but God, and in fact, when we feel guilt and shame, when our hearts accuse us, the last thing we want to do is go before God. And So we'll try all sorts of things. We'll try to numb ourselves with alcohol or media or food or distract ourselves so we don't have to feel it. But John says, no, go to God. He alone can reassure our hearts. Now, I I need to give a qualification that will cover this whole sermon, and uh, I want to give it now so I don't have to keep giving it every time because I think it'll blunt the power of what John is trying to tell us. But there's a qualification for all of this, and that's this. John has already told us in chapter 3, verse 5, that no one who abides in God keeps on sinning. Uh, It is not possible to be a Christian and live perpetually in habitual, unrepentant sin. And so John is not talking to the Christian who, or the person who feels bad and wants to feel better so that they continue doing what they've been doing. The, answer, the, 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 the solution for that situation is repentance. But John is speaking to the Christian who is imperfectly as imperfectly as anyone is trying to love the Lord, is fighting sin, but yet still deals with a guilty conscience. Their hearts accuse them. That's who John is speaking to. So again, that's my qualification for this whole sermon. But he says, beloved, when your conscience troubles you, go to God. Why? For he alone is greater than our hearts. Again, this is how we assure our hearts before him. Verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And that's interesting. John doesn't say God is great or God is powerful or strong. He doesn't use a noun. He uses a comparative word. He's greater. And so the question is, greater than what? And John's doing that intentionally because the answer is that God is greater in every way than even our hearts, which know how to get on us so profoundly. He's greater in terms of power and majesty. And so that means that when our hearts accuse us, God can silence the voice of our heart. It's like the voice of Jesus Speaking to the winds and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, and what does he say? He says, be still, and the waves stop. In the same way, God can speak to our hearts. Be still, and our hearts obey. God's creator in power and majesty, but, but he's also greater in compassion, and this is so important, because this is one of the reasons why we often fail to go to God when our hearts are burdened and guilty and shamed, God is greater than, God is far more gracious than our own hearts are. This is that passage we read this morning in Exodus 34. In the context of Exodus 34, God has already made a set of Ten Commandments, and while he's giving his gracious law to Moses, the people can't handle 40 days, and they go and make another idol and go worship other gods and, uh, and Moses has gone down, the people have repented, and God is now doing it again. So he's already in, in a context of showing grace to a people who are unfaithful. And this is what happens when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai the second time. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And what was that name? the Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He proclaims his name. That means he's saying something that is basic about God's character and being. He is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's what's most true about God. When your heart condemns you, even when it rightly condemns you, God is far more compassionate than we realize. We go to a father who shows more grace than we can possibly imagine. This is the story of the prodigal son. If you remember, the prodigal son, you know, he he takes his father's money, basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead. I don't need you, want you, love you, care about you, and then he runs off. And if you remember the older brother at the end when the father forgives him, he's like, you shouldn't have done that. Do you know what your son did to you? He doesn't deserve this. That's the voice of the heart condemning the younger son. And the, 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 the fact of the matter is that the older brother was right. The younger son didn't deserve any of that. He really had done some pretty horrific things. And, you can, and and it says, you know, younger son, when he's sitting there, and he, he waits for the last possible moment to return because he assumes if he goes back to his dad, his dad's going to be angry at him, disappointed with him. He's not going to accept him back. So he waits until there's no other alternative. And then finally he's like, well, maybe my dad will treat me like a slave and just let me live in the shed out back. That's how we often think of God. In our shame and our guilt, we think he's going to just make me go live out back. And so I don't go home. But what does it say? It says as he's walking back while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and ran to him. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and kind. That's his name. God is greater than our hearts. When our hearts accuse us, we run to our father. For he is greater than our hearts. His mercy does not have a limit. Now, some of you, as you're sitting there, a little voice whispers in your ear. says, yeah, it's probably true for most people, but not for what I've done. If people knew what's in my past, people knew what I did this past week. And that is the silliest lie of the evil one. Why do I say it's silly? And verse 20, God is greater than our heart, And he knows everything. When Satan whispers in your ear if people knew, (laughs) God already knows. And yet he's showing compassion. His grace covers all for the blood of his son is perfectly effective. No remainder. When your heart accuses you, go to God. For he is greater than your heart. That's the first point rest for the guilty conscience second point blessing of the clear conscience verses 21 and 22 let me read it for us beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before god and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do it pleases him there should be a break in between verse 20 and 21, and some translations actually make a new paragraph because there's a slight break in thought. And when you read it at first, or this is confusing. He's saying there's assurance for those with guilty consciences, but if your conscience is clean, you're blessed, and it's confusing. What he's doing is painting a narrative. He's painting the narrative of a person who comes before God, weighed down by sin, full of guilt and shame, finding peace before God, and then the blessings he enjoys when he has a clear conscience before God because he has allowed God to silence his own heart. That's what, that's what he's getting at here, and there's, there's, for the person who has come to God in their own guilt and shame and allowed God to speak peace into their lives, there's great blessings. And the first blessing, he says here in verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, you read that first, and, and uh, uh, you probably just skip over it. Like, okay, cool, I'm confident before God, whatever that means. But there is a world of meaning in that one word, confidence. It's the opposite of shame. Shame connotes hiddenness, hiding. When we're shamed, we want to hide. We don't want anyone to see. I don't want to go where I'm going to be known. Confidence signifies openness, frankness, honesty. <clears throat> It's it's, it's a type of relationship we typically only have in either a very good marriage or with a best friend. The kind of relationship where you're so known and loved and cared for that there's just an easiness to the relationship. You can have silences aren't awkward. Um, You can share what you're really thinking and feeling and you're not worried about what the person is thinking, how they're going to receive it. And John is saying, when, when we go to God and we allow Him to silence our hearts, to speak peace into our hearts, that's the kind of free and unrestricted relationship we can have with the living God. In fact, this is the kind of, of rela- sorry, this is the kind of relationship that Job's friends condemned him for. Right? They said, "You can't talk to God like that. You can't say those kinds of frank, honest to God. He's the living God. You can't do that." So it made the Pharisees so uncomfortable with Jesus. They're like, Jesus, you're talking to God as if he's really your father. This is the great blessing of going to God when our hearts condemn us and allowing him to silence our hearts so we can have this kind of free and unrestricted relationship with our father in heaven. We can be walking on the street and just talk to him. We can be lying in our beds just start speaking to him and our father in heaven hears us we don't need to go on a pilgrimage to some religious site we don't need a specific ritual to go through we don't need a a mediator to go between us and God we can have this open and easy and beautiful relationship with the God of all and I have a really important point to make about this confidence that we have before God and and that it's, it's one that's based purely on grace. Purely on grace. Because here's a fact of the matter. As we mature in our Christian faith, we begin to understand sin differently. When, when we first become Christians or we're young in the faith, we, we focus on sins, individual things we do wrong, and, 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 and that's what our repentance focuses on. But as, as we mature in our faith, we begin to understand sin And that the problem is not just that we maybe lie occasionally. The problem is that there's something within us that predisposes us to lying. There's something in us that's inclining us to these things. C.S. Lewis talks about the human nature is bent. I love that description because humans are both beautiful and noble and great and tragic and terrible at the same time. We're not as bad as we could be, but there's something in us that's bent that just misfires. And so what we realize as we mature in our faith is that none of us have clean hands. If my clear conscience before God is based off of my performance as a Christian this past week, if all I'm thinking about is those obvious big sins, maybe I'm okay, but as I begin to understand that sin is something deep and bent within me, none of, I begin to realize my best moments have a shadow to them. My deepest loves have a narcissistic bent to them. So where does our confidence come from? Well, our clear conscience and our confidence comes from our conviction that God is more gracious than we can fathom. When I feel the weight of my sin not individual sins, but just I'm just tired of my proneness towards anger and my proneness towards pride. One of the verses that gives me comfort is Psalm 103, verses 13 to 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows that we're broken fallen, finite humans, and yet he shows compassion to us. You know, the story of the Reformation, if you're familiar with that, the great spiritual renewal of the church in the 15th century led by Martin Luther, is really the story of a man who is deeply burdened in his guilt and shame to rediscovering the gospel of grace. Martin Luther was a monk who had a deep sense of, again, his sin, not sins, but his sin. It didn't matter how many, Hours he spent on his knees reading the Bible, how many hours of fasting and prayer, all the beat his body to try to subdue what was inside him. He knew that in the presence of a holy God his sin was filthy and his best moments were still tainted. And he had no peace, no assurance, only dread. Until he came to that great redisco- rediscovery that when we turn to Christ, in faith, God gives us not our own righteousness, but his righteousness. And it's not based on anything we've done, but it's a gift, it's grace. And we receive it through faith by believing in Jesus. And about four or five years after Martin Luther rediscovered this and set in motion what would change literally the face of the human race, the course of the human race, about five years later, he's writing to a fellow pastor Who is dealing with similar questions of a burdened heart and sin and grace? And he says, He says this He says, If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. And if the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. This is oftentimes summarized as love God and sin boldly, which which is a little bit misleading because Martin Luther is in no way saying sanctification doesn't matter, holiness doesn't matter. What he's saying is this. I was a camp counselor one summer in college and the last day of camp, all the campers have gone home. We've packed up the camp. It was a Christian camp, by the way. And our camp director is giving us kind of like a final farewell speech and uh, he says something along the lines of, you all are a lot worse than you think you are. <laughs> That's how he started. Which is like, thanks, Chief Ron. We called counselors chiefs. Is weird. He's um, like, thanks, Chief Ron. That's a really great way to send me off. He said, you're a lot worse than you think you are. God's grace is far greater than you imagine, too. That's what Luther is saying. He's saying the way to a clear conscience let your sins be strong. Don't minimize our, our sin, our brokenness. Don't, don't try to dismiss it if it isn't there. That's not the way to a clear conscience. Rather, let your trust in Christ be stronger, who is victor over sin, death, and the world. And that's where we get a clear conscience. It's a gift of God. As we trust in Christ, who is the conqueror over these things. That's the first blessing of uh, un. Unre- sorry, that's the first blessing: the clear conscience, a close fellowship with the Father. But there's, there's a second blessing here, and it's effective prayer. Look at verse 22. He says, "If you know if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him." Be careful about this verse. It could sound like John is saying, "Is you know if you if you try to please Christ, do His commandments." he gives you a blank check. Whatever you want, money, fame, power, prestige, a new car, he'll give it to you. I mean, that's what it says, right? Whatever we ask. When we come to the Bible, a basic principle of biblical interpretation is that we let the Bible interpret itself. And in fact, the Bible is its own best interpreter. So when we come to verses that like, ah, I can't mean what I think it means, we to see what else scripture says about it. In fact, John later in the same letter, in chapter 5, verse 14, says this, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. See, here's the thing. Someone who is, who is, who is in the burdens of their heart gone to God and allowed God to silence their own hearts, who's walking in a free and unrestricted relationship with the living God, with their heavenly Father, who is following after christ they're going to more and more want what god wants they're going to more and more desire and ask for what god wants to give in the first place and their prayers will be more effective this may make some of us uncomfortable especially if you're somewhat of a calvinist how can our prayers make actual differences in the world hasn't god ordained everything can our prayers change God's plan? How do I make sense of this? And I'll just I'll address it really quickly in that first, I believe God has sovereignly ordained all things. No leaf falls off a tree unless God has given it permission or has ordained for it to do so. And yet I also believe that our prayer, and by the way, I believe that not because John Calvin is my homeboy, but because I think the Bible teaches it over and over and over again. But secondly, I believe that our prayers change things and again, I believe that because the Bible teaches it over and over. And there are ways we can try to understand how these two truths cohere, but at the end of the day, it's mystery and it's paradox. And I'm okay not fully understanding it. I'll let the systematic theologians handle that conundrum. But John's point is that how we live our lives alters the effectiveness of our prayers. We've, a lot of times we'll talk about prayer warriors. And in a church, oftentimes they're, they're, they're old grandmothers. I don't, they're never grandfathers. I don't know why that is, but a prayer warrior, someone who has gone to God frequently in the burdens of their heart, allowed Him to speak peace, have received that by grace, walk in a close fellowship with the Father, and as a result, when they pray, things happen. In God's mysterious providence, when they pray, things happen. That's the second blessing of living. Of, of having a clear conscience before God, a free and unrestricted relationship, is that when we pray, He hears our prayers. It's the second point, the blessing of a clear conscience. You know our third point, which is abiding in God, verses 23 to 24. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. And whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. If you remember, John is using three tests, and he goes over them three different times in this letter, and they're tests for authentic faith. How do we know we're true Christians? Well, there's a, first there's a moral test, obedience to Christ's commands. There's a social test, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a doctrinal test believing that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh. And if we pass all three of those as evidence that we are true Christians, well, amazingly, John summarizes them and basically summarizes the entire book of 1 John in 1 John 3, verse 24. Sorry, verse 23. (laughs) 1 John 3, verse 23. This is the commandment. That's the moral test. That we believe in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a doctrinal test. And love one another. That's a social test. And if we do that, we will abide in God and he in us. And considering the God that we've been thinking about this morning, the God who is merciful and compassionate, who runs to the prodigal, who else would we want to abide with? And the same God who speaks peace to burdened hearts, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, take my yoke upon you for my burden is light. Whomever we follow, whatever we follow, whatever we give our hearts to, whether it's our jobs or a relationship or you know, just having fun and whatever, it's gonna be a yoke. It's gonna be a burden on us, it's gonna require things from us. And the question is, is that gonna lead us to life? Is it gonna lead us to hearts of peace? And so John tells us, look, when your hearts are troubled, go to God. And the burden he gives us light, it's one simple commandment. You don't have to be Mother Teresa. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You don't have to whatever. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ that the man born in Nazareth 2,000 years ago was not simply a great prophet, but he was the living son of God. And love one another. And you will abide in God, and God will abide in you. Hopefully, as I've been preaching through this, there's been ways that God has been applying this to your heart and, uh, and, and stirring in your hearts. But I want to finish with two kind of concluding applications. And the first is train your heart to go to God in all things. Again, the of our hearts is that uh, God is often the last person we go to when our hearts are troubled. Or even when we're doing well. So train your hearts. When you're at peace and life is good and and, and there's joy and fullness in your life, go to God and thanks as a giver of all good things. When your heart is heavy, when you're anxious, when you're depressed, go to God. Train your heart to go to God, to your loving Father whose compassion is greater than we know. So train your heart to go to God in all things throughout your day. Second, find your heart's rest, your peace, not in your track record for this past week or how you're performing as a Christian, which is, an, you know, performing. Don't find your peace in that or your heart's rest in that, but find it instead in that Jesus died for real sinners, which means he gives real grace, which brings real peace. Let's pray. Jesus, you came and you said and you you issued an invitation to come to you all who are weary and heavy laden and you will give them rest. And we confess that we have found that in you. And we long for more that our hearts may be at peace no matter what the circumstances of our life are, no matter what is going well or what is not going well. May we be a people who go to you in every aspect of our life, throughout our day, that we might believe more what you say than even what our own hearts tell us. For you are greater than our hearts. And in you there is an infinite reservoir of compassion and grace. We bless you for your good. We pray in your holy name. Amen.